back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Up to episode 10 now. We're actually going to have an episode 11 we're going to throw in for this season. Maybe an extra one. But today well, I am talking to Rob Wilson. Rob Wilson is the head coach for PSE, Power Speed Endurance. And his focus is really around the use of your breath, which is an interesting area. So we talked to Rob about this today, about breathing and movement and mobility strength and condition and even martial arts so rob comes from a background in manual therapy but as you'll hear in this episode rob got into yoga uh you know early on in his life and sort of got really engaged with with yoga probably scenario he wasn't going to go down in his in his life and um that's where he discovered the breath work and you know, in the last couple of years, he's been training with Kelly Starrett, um, who you may have heard on Joe Rogan's podcast, who's got some great books out like The Supple Leopard and has the Mobility Wad website. In addition, Rob is also a martial artist. He's trained in Judo, Muay Thai, Salat, Kali, and is currently trained in Jiu-Jitsu. Rob is extremely passionate about this subject, which come, comes across in this episode. So whether you're just looking to improve your breath, uh, lower stress in your daily life, you're an athlete looking for a new edge, uh, you're a shift worker, you're looking to deepen your practice in mindfulness where we had some episodes before, this episode is definitely for you. So as we talk about in this episode, the breath is a key aspect to any sort of physical and mental performance So Rob goes into this. Now in this episode, Rob also talks a lot about yoga as well. And I have to say, since talking to Rob, I've been really inspired to start doing more yoga. And since this uh, record, since the recording of this episode, I've been probably getting about four to five yoga sessions in a week, and I have found significant improvement in not only my mobility but also my performance. My swimming has improved, my jiu-jitsu's improved, and more importantly, my uh, ability to train uh, uh, twice a day or back-to-back days has improved as well. So I have very little downtime, and my my sort of old injuries from running and other things have. Um, basically all but gone uh, through yoga so it's been very interesting so Rob has really inspired me to start doing that so maybe you might get some inspiration from this episode to try something new okay we'll have a few ads and then we'll be straight into the episode this episode of sleep for performance radio is brought to you by Orbiz Orbiz are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries. They facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now Orbis are growing their global presence across the Asia Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, true to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost. Who can beat that? Increase in capacity utilization, throughput, increase in revenue, profitability and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology 
join engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors in industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbiz.io, that's Orbiz, O-R-B-I-Z.io, for more information, get in contact with them to organise quality systems to the test against the national standards. They provide commitment and dedication by providing you a high quality service. Now I've worked with these guys before, they are excellent. Um, they are a very diligent business and one that is trusted here in Western Australia. Sleep WA is one of the only sleep and respiratory centres to provide holistic care and treatment for all sleep and respiratory disorders, not just obstructive sleep apnea, which many people would have hear, heard about in, uh, in the news or in, in the scientific literature or even on this podcast. So Sleep WA believe that all patients deserve compassion, support, multiple treatment options and education to allow them to actively participate in their own journey to better health. Sleep WA provides a comprehensive service to diagnose and recommend treatment of all respiratory diseases and sleep disorders. This includes rare sleep disorders and those complicated by cardiovascular disease. The Sleep WA philosophy is to offer patients expert diagnosis, effective therapy and supportive guidance on the road to better health and sleep. They are a leader in respiratory and sleep medicine and provide the following service at locations throughout Western Australia. Consultation with experienced specialists, comprehensive respiratory testing for lung disease, asthma and allergies, inpatient sleep studies, home-based sleep studies, that's pretty handy, insomnia management programs for insomnia and circadian disorders, and fatigue management programs to reduce risk and improve health in the workplace. So get started on your journey towards better health and sleep today and head over to Sleep WA, that's WA for Western Australia, and get in contact with Dion and Jack over there. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science Ready Band is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The Ready Band is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomechanical fatigue model, which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is it's actually predicting into the future what your performance is going to be based upon your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners of this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you have accrued, and even your local um, geographical location, so a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology um, that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ReadyBand not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals. So you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is 
is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this, the Chicago Cubs have used this, military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, it's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball, um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport, it's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC, so it's a wide variety of applications. So if fatigue is important to you and your organization, whether you're a sports team or an industrial workforce, head to fatiguescience.com, that's fatiguescience.com, to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the Ready Band can improve safety and performance in your organization. One. Rob Wilson, welcome to Sleep for Performance Radio. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. That's good. Do you know, I, Rob, interesting enough, I know about 15 Rob Wilsons. Well, that's because it's the second most common name in the English language. You think so? Oh, or that's a fact. It's a fact. Only second to John Smith. No shit. Really? Yeah. Robert Wilson's very common. You, w- you might not believe this, but my grandfathers were English and Irish. <laughs> really? That's, that's unusual. Yeah. I've never heard anybody yeah. in America have an Irish ancestry. That's very unusual. <laughs> <laughs> Robert James Wilson. That's my name. Every yeah. time someone friends me on Facebook with the name Rob Wilson, I think to myself, this is the 16th Rob Wilson. This is the 17th Rob Wilson. I've known I know. I'm, But I'm the best one so far, so it's cool. The best one? Yeah. Good. Rob, <laughs> for our listeners out there, tell us why um, you are the best Rob Wilson. <laughs> Can you give us a little bit of a, bit of a background on who you are, Rob, and, and what you do with PSE? Yeah, for sure. So uh, my educational background is in manual therapy, and I've been a sports orthopedic-focused manual therapist for 2018, uh, 17 years. So that's been my, my primary focus, uh, especially in the realm of uh, PNF, right, which is a neuromuscular technique and myofascial release. And uh, let's see, on sort of as my career went that way, I was on the Mobility Watt staff. So Dr. Kelly Storette um, is an old, uh, an old friend of mine, and this is how I met Brian McKenzie, right, of Power Speed Endurance and Unscared. And um, my role on the Power Speed Endurance staff is uh, specifically – I'm the PSC Breathe head coach, and then I'm the co-founder of the Art of Breath series, uh, seminar series with Brian uh, McKenzie. So, um, I mean, there's obviously quite a bit more to, but that's like sort of the, the Cliff Notes version of yeah. my, uh, my professional biography. Um, right now, the main focus is um, research and development of uh, breathwork protocols for human performance, whether that's the health end of the spectrum um, or it's the sport end of the spectrum. And, and what's interesting is that they actually cross over um, a lot more than, than one might think. Yeah, I think, it's, uh, I think it's really interesting, Rob, and I, I'm always fascinated by, um, by this. Why do people get into the recovery modalities, such as manual therapy, you know, recovery specialists, rehab, all that? Um, because most people tend to focus on the strength and conditioning, what kind of improves performance, you know, lift heavier weights, run faster, the kind of, you know, all that performance training side. But most people don't really look at the recovery side or get into it. What made you get into that recovery side, you know, at the start of your career? Um, gosh, it's hard to say. Maybe my first thing was that uh, my favorite comic book character was always Wolverine. And I just thought it was, hey, it was really badass that you could heal from anything. 
Um, uh, you know, I have a strength and conditioning background as well. So I, you know, I've been a strength coach, uh, in addition for, you know, almost 15 years, 12 years, 15 years, something like that depends on the timeline that I take. But, um, in any case, at some point they cross because really what we're talking about is maximizing adaptation results. Right. So I think, um, I think both strength coaches and people on the therapeutic end of the spectrum, um, tend to buy into the misnomer that those things are somehow separate from each other. But really what we're talking about is managing the adaptation process as best as possible. I mean, it's so multifactorial in a human being that, you know, everything from normal things that we might take into consideration as a strength coach, like volume movement and all those sort of strength and conditioning metrics that we would use um, to the other side of the spectrum, like, healing processes, mental health, those are so completely integrated with one another that it's really impossible to see where one ends and the other one begins. Um, the healing thing for me is, uh, you know, I was, I grew up in the martial arts. So I, I think it, as sort of sports and movement systems go, well applied martial arts, at least traditionally, have a very holistic perspective on being able to perform well, but also um, being like a well-managed human being uh, overall. And so I think the fact that I come from uh, a background that has uh, an entire philosophical precept to it, that is especially influenced by um, Eastern thinking where there's a lot of holism around the person. They don't separate the body and the mind as much that it's intrinsic. Mm. Um, uh, and then of course, you know, one of my great heroes is Bruce Lee. Um, and so Bruce Lee was at least in modern times was one of the first people who was a martial artist who was thinking about what can I do and how can I make my body function optimally? Um, as far as manual therapy is concerned, I really wasn't sure that I liked it. Um, I was going to college for something that I hated. Um, uh, I was studying international business. I was mostly a language major and I still very much like language studies, but I didn't want to wear a, like, I'm not a suit guy. I'm not built to put on a tie and go to a nine to five job. And, uh, I'd be a miserable, unproductive piece of shit if I had a job like that and I knew it early, I probably couldn't articulate it that well. Um, but I had always been into, you know, I grew up in a household where we were encouraged to try and participate in lots of sports. My parents were competitive athletes and martial artists and being, but, and, but also took very good care of themselves. We ate really well in my house. Um, so it was just a part of the culture. And I knew that's what I really cared about. I was taking my buddies to the gym and talking to them about food probably since I was 15. And so um, I quit college and, and went to manual therapy school. You know, I, w I went to massage therapy school and I was like, I want to do this. And then right away I knew like the fluff and buff thing isn't for me. Um, there's nothing wrong with it, but I, my brain likes to solve problems. And so as soon as I started to work with people who had chronic pain, I was like, ooh, this is interesting. And then I realized at least the population I was working with initially, most of the problems that they were having were because they didn't move often enough and in varied enough ways. And so I started prescribing um, 
all kinds of stretching. Like if you've ever read, uh, I think Bob Anderson stretching is like super old classic. I was photocopying things out of that book for people and I was into yoga. Uh, and so I was just a lot into movement. And then I was like, I really have to teach people how to move. And that's how strength and conditioning came into the fold. I learned that stuff. And then I realized that the, the intersection between those two professions was so obvious that if you have one without the other, it's incomplete yeah. for sure. Yeah, I think definitely like when it comes to sort of strength and conditioning and recovery, it's a, it is a yin-yang sort of interdependent cycle. You know, you have to have both. You can't just constantly be going at like, you know, full speed ahead, strength and conditioning type always trying to get better and not focus on the recovery and i think too often people try to shortcut the recovery particularly at the um the amateur the amateur levels um i think people just constantly you know burn themselves out trying to work train like a monster train twice a day when they haven't got the the capability or the capacity to to train like that and I see this a lot with older people, including myself. <laughs> it's probably why I, break, <laughs> why I broke myself recently. Uh, you know, but, you know, it kind of is what it is. And, yeah, I think, you know, I'm very much on the, the go hard side. I need to incorporate more recovery myself, um, which is one of the reasons why I have you on, Rob. What, what kind of brought you to the breath work after, you know, this sort of business career type studies and, and languages and then through to manual therapy what brought you into the breath work specifically what how did you get to that well you know as i mentioned i've always i've been long influenced by you know eastern tradition initially through the martial arts and then you know reading uh in the zen tradition and and meditative traditions for for a very long time and then i guess it makes me when i think back to how old i was through my history it makes me realize my age but um, uh, probably in my very early twenties, 19, 20, 21, I was, uh, really deep into yoga. I got into yoga actually while I was studying at college, I needed a physical education credit and, uh, it wasn't honorable or spiritual. There was just pretty girls in the class and I wanted to be in the class with the pretty girls who were fit. And so I went, but the instructor was amazing. And, uh, I realized very quickly, um, that there was some, some deep merit inside yoga practice. And it was an Iyengar instructor. And then I basically, other than um, water sports, so I also grew up surfing, body surfing. I surf kayaked. I was always in the water. I live uh, on the East Coast of the United States. And um, I gave up all my like normal, traditional sort of bodybuilder style strength work that I had been doing. And I just studied yoga probably about six years. And that was my first deep formal um, introduction. And when I say I was studying yoga, I don't mean like I went to an hour yoga class a couple times a week. I mean, I like sought out instructors. Um, I've read the yoga sutras of Patanjali at least a dozen times. You know, I've read the Hatha yoga, Pradipika. Um, so on and on, like I really wanted to understand what it is that I was doing. I spent a lot of times, I was up at four in the morning every day, blah, blah, blah. Um, so the yogic practices were my first introduction into the sort of power that breath work can have over you. And then, um, the, you know, of course I have talked about this, um, many times before and what I, the more I reflect back, the more I realize how 
intrinsic it was to different things that I was doing, even though maybe I couldn't articulate it. So for example, when I was surfing, when you're surfing and you're paddling, you have to keep your mouth closed, right? Otherwise you get a mouthful of water, sucks. So you learn to paddle in rhythm. You breathe only through your nose while you're paddling because you have no choice. And so I can remember like timing strokes with my breathing and things like that, but not like for the purpose of breath work. It just, it was just happening. Just for practicality. Um, yeah, it was just practicality. Exactly. It was pragmatic application. I didn't develop any protocol or try to teach anybody else. You just have to keep your mouth shut and paddle. Um, so in, in any case, um, the degree of focus that I had on at that time sort of subsided as I got into the CrossFit scene. Um, but I, I still knew it was important. I just, it just kind of went into the back files and, um, I don't know. I've been coaching athletes, uh, for some years and, uh, there were some military guys, some special warfare guys that I was working with here in uh, Virginia beach. And one of the first things that I ran across was, um, that guys, and this is, you know, I know something that, you know, we're going to get into today. I'm sure because you're a sleep guy, um, is, uh, guys were having trouble sleeping because they were traversing time zones all the time, even in training, um, having nothing to do, even if they didn't have any, you know, battle stress problems, they just, their training was taking them back and forth across the country all the time. And their circadian rhythm was fucked. And, you know, these, excuse my language, but these guys would, um, like either take Ambien or drink or not sleep, um, very much. And it would, their bodies were breaking down. And so guys that I was working with would be like, Hey, what, you know, what can I do to sleep better? I, I used to recommend the book lights out. I'm sure you've read lights out. Uh, it's just classic, right, right. It's just right there in the corner of my bookcase over there. Yeah. If you have, I'm sure you've recommended it many times on this yes. podcast, but if you have not read lights out, it's a, it's an eye opening uh, book to read. It's been a while since I read it. I need to go back to it, but it's in any hard, case, very hard to get copies of it now. Is it really? Yeah, I don't think it's, don't think it's being printed anymore. I can get some secondhand copies on Amazon. I remember a couple of years ago, I must have bought 20 copies and I was handing it out like as gifts or, you know, for people who are really interested. But you're right. It's an awesome book and it's written for the general population. It's not a scientifically heavy book. It's a yeah, great, it's great. Great, great book that, you know, sort of gets into the relationship between sleep, sugar, diabetes, obesity, mental health. It's probably one of the pioneering books that kind of really... Yeah, brought it to the public. I think it was written by a journalist, T.S. Wiley. Awesome yeah. book. I agree with you, Rob. It's like it's yeah, it's a brilliant book. Hey, it turns out your body does this thing for a third of your life for pretty important reasons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't an accident that you're that you're that evolutionarily we devoted a third of our life to a singular behavior. Well, well, wait now, wait now. Hold yeah. on, we got we got to stop there, Rob, because you're an American. I got to stop there. Donald Trump only only needs four hours a night, and look how successful and intelligent he is. Yeah, but he looks like shit. Hey, <laughs> the guy's got orange hair. What can I say? <laughs> I mean, you know what though? Different value systems for different people, right? Different strokes for different folks, as they say. I, what, what I want to know is: Is he napping during the day? That's what I want to know. Because he might be getting four hours sleep overnight, but is he napping during the day? Yeah, but also look at, you know, just as a quick aside, like look at presidents and how much they age, even in four years. Oh, yeah. Barack Obama's hair, hair went like gray to white in no time. Boom. I mean, it happens, but, you know, that's why it should be, it's a public service. That's how it should be thought of, right? Um, in any case, <laughs> uh, 
in any case, the, the breath work, I, you know, so I lost track of it for some time and started to get back into it to, to help uh, soldiers. And then uh, my real big boost back into it um, was uh, when I got introduced to the Wim Hof method. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, the ice so man. I did Wim's course, the Iceman, a few years ago. I did his online course. This was I was starting my consciousness around it, like was gaining momentum by this point. And then um, he was one of the bigger voices in the scene. Um, and you know, I read the book. And um, uh, can we can we just pa- can we just pause there, Brian? Or sorry, Rob, because I want to talk yeah. about. I've heard other people talk about the Iceman. I've listened to many podcasts, and if anybody hasn't heard of Wim Hof the Iceman even if you're not into his work just go and watch him on YouTube or hear him on a podcast he's quite he's quite inspiring just to listen to that you obviously <laughs> met him and did this course face to face what was he was he no 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 I didn't I did not I did his, oh, I did his online, online course, course. Yeah, yeah. okay yeah so you yeah, didn't actually get to meet him no Brian has met him on a few different occasions and uh, I have not had the opportunity as of yet I think you know at least from what I can tell from a distance um, like any method like once you codify a method of something, then immediately there's limitations. Um, but what I will say is that um, everybody who's working in this space owes Wim a debt of gratitude because he's brought so much attention oh, yeah. to the importance of breath work that um, it, it's really impossible not to mention him. Uh, he, wh- whatever your personal or professional opinion might be about the method itself. Um, Everybody owes him a tip of the hat. He's an amazing guy. I think he's broken something like 26 world yeah. records, swam underwater in the Arctic Circle. You know, they cut through like a like couple meters of ice, and then he swam underneath. And I mean, he's done all kinds yeah, of crazy, crazy shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's done some amazing things with his with his own personal physiology for sure. There's no denying that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, he really shows us that like there human beings are more capable of than what we might think and that uh, an enormous amount of our potential is untapped yet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So I did whims course and then I started to, you know, I'm an obsessive person. So like once I latch onto something, it's a hundred percent, hundred miles an hour. I want to understand it through and through. Um, much to my wife's chagrin sometimes. Um, but so I really started to get into it and I was talking to uh, Kelly Storette and I was like, this breathwork stuff is amazing. I seeing connections where um, some of the yogic thinking that I'd done and some of the Wim Hof stuff where there was some, some underlying connections or places where they did not connect. And I wanted to understand why. And he was like, Hey, you got to talk to Brian McKenzie. And, uh, He's deep into this work. He's working with Laird Hamilton, yada, yada, yada. So Brian and I talked on the phone and we hit it off right away. Brian came and uh, did a seminar here. His, the old version of the seminar we do now, he, Brian had a seminar called Performance Breathing and he came to Virginia Beach and uh, he and I taught together at that uh, venue. Um, and he and I really just like our personalities just click really well together. And, um, he was like, Hey, do you want to, do you want to be a part of like the evolution of this work? I said, hundred percent. Absolutely. I'm about it. And now we have the art of breath course. Um, we have multiple breathing programs online through power, speed, endurance. And, um, 
every time I learn something new about breathing, I learn five things. I, there's like five more things that I'm like, I don't understand this yet. Every, there's like so many rabbit holes to go down because it's such a fundamental part of the way our physiology organizes itself that there's so many directions that you can go to try to understand it. It's just, I wish I had two brains so I could pack, you know, like an external hard drive. I could put the stuff in and then move it over and then plug in when I need to uh, access it. But that's that's kind of like that Dunning-Kruger curve, which you'll probably be familiar with. Like, you know, at the very start, when you get into something new or you, you, you get to understand a little bit about something, you think your knowledge is vast and very high. But as you progress over time, you realize how little you know. And then over time, because you go down these rabbit holes, you actually do become an expert and your knowledge goes up. So it's like this, this U-shaped curve over time. And I can certainly empathize with that. Like recently finishing a PhD at the end of last year, you know, and sort of towards the end, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm getting, you know, I'm understanding this quite well. And you know, I heard this guy talking about sleep and neuroscience. Just blew me away. I had absolutely no idea. Like, it's just, here's another thing now I've got to get into. Here's, and there, there's constantly, to your point, there's just something every day. And people go, but it's just sleep. Like, and, and, and then you just do a lot of stuff about sleep and performance. But then within that, there's like, there's multiple levels again in that, you know, that you could just constantly be reading about the whole time. And Apart from that, there's a whole body of research coming behind you that you got to keep on on top of as well. And there's constantly, you know, this evolution happening. So, yeah, I, well, I, we 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 communicate so fast now okay. that when a new research paper comes out, you know about it instantly. <laughs> and then on top of whatever knowledge base you build, if you actually work with other humans, you have to also find a way to make that information simple enough that another person will want to do it and then actually do it. So then there's the whole behavioral component of all this because if you're just a researcher, not I don't mean to say just a researcher, but if you're only a researcher and that's your primary mode of operation, then it's just about keeping up with data, right? It's just what questions does this give us and what answers does it give us? And you're sort of playing process of elimination and refining your question over time. But if you're a person who works with people and you actually have to take information and get somebody to apply it reasonably into an integrated life, then I also have to take into account like human behavior, reading people. Will this person actually do it? Can they do it? Do they even understand what I'm talking about? Do I have, how much do I have to educate them? Are they resistant to it? Do they have a drinking problem? Like, uh, or do they have kids? Are they up late at night? Are they up early in the morning? What's their job? Do they like to read? If I send them an article, are they going to read it? Or do I send them a video? Like, there's that huge gamut of application on top of understanding all of the background information and then boiling it down to one or two, distilling it to a couple points and going, oh, by the way, um, here's what I want you to do. No blue light and go to bed on time. Hmm. Like what two factors can I distill down that will have the most impact based on the, in, you know, the library of shit that I read? What can I give the person today? You know, so like in the course of 17 years of manual therapy, you know, I've read about all kinds of reciprocal inhibition and, you know, myofascial release techniques and all. And most of the stuff I show people boils down to like, like less than five things. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Because, because it's like, what will they do? Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's really interesting to say that because like, one thing I've enjoyed about my career is working in doing laboratory-based studies, applied-based studies, consultancy work, working in companies, uh, being in the military, working with athletes, working with people in mining, oil and gas, executives, all that. You know, the only people I don't like working with is parents. Parents and kids. I can't do that. I just can't. That's the only part I have to stay away from. That's the <laughs> hardest part. I can go out onto a remote mine site, talk about sleep, work cycles, roster cycles, fly in, fly out, shift optimization, looking at engineering data. Ask When a parent asks me about their kids sleeping, I just want to turn off. I can't, can't deal with it. It's too, people get too emotive about it, so I can't deal with it. But, to your, <laughs> but to your point, I think, yeah, I think it's great that you know, we get these, get these crossover applications. And that's where some of the true learning, Rob, I think comes out, where we can take these common themes and put them across um, from different industries, different people. But one thing I've learned recently I've been doing is I'm not telling people what they can't do or like don't, well, like your, to your example of don't have any blue light. Now I've changed it to be more positive. And that's something I've learned the last year, which is like watch as much TV as you want until nine o'clock at night. Drink as much coffee as you like till two o'clock in the afternoon. Drink as much alcohol as you want before 6 p.m. Because when you start saying that to people, automatically you're like, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. These are the parameters when I have to stop as opposed to no alcohol, no TV, no coffee. Because all in straight away it's a negative. And then you feel like people are feeling, feeling like they're having something reduced or taken away from them. So for me, that's been a learning the last 12 months is about telling people what they can do as opposed to what they can't do. And I seem to get better compliance with that. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes, that makes total sense to me for sure. Yeah. Um, that's like, uh, so I do time-restricted eating. Yeah, yeah. Very familiar. And uh, so, uh, you know, about 9 o'clock at night, I don't eat anything until maybe 10 or 11 the next day. And for me, I don't know that that's for everybody, but for me and my lifestyle, it works quite well. I feel really good. I train fasted. Um, but, uh, when I was first learning about it, one of the things they were saying is that it was really successful in helping people who had, um, uh, either pre-diabetes or, or type two diabetes. And they weren't sure yet if it was just because of, um, you know, like the circadian rhythm of digestion, or if it was just because most of the crap that people eat is late at night. And so when they started limiting what time they could eat. So they could be like, eat whatever you want, but you have to stop eating at 8 PM. Well, most people, their sweet tooth and when they eat shit is after that time. So they just don't, they're just not eating it. And so then they were losing weight and they they were like, they had to do further studies to see if it was a correlation or a cause uh, behaviorally. So I was like, so that makes sense uh, in the context of what you're saying. So Rob, come, coming back onto the breath work, because we're going to digress here, I feel, on 20 different brilliant <laughs> topics, which is, which is awesome and I love it. But can you give us a quick overview of what the respiratory system is and what we're talking about when we talk about breath work? So if we were to isolate the respiratory system out of the body, what's, what's, what's parts of the respiratory system are we looking at? Um, the most fundamental role of the respiratory system is to bring oxygen in and to push carbon dioxide out. So oxygen is a, our primary uh, energy fuel resource in the human body and carbon dioxide is the primary waste product from aerobic respiration right so aerobic means with oxygen so that's it that's the function of your lungs is to bring 
air into the air in, pull oxygen out of that air, right? Because people assume air and oxygen are the same thing, but they're not, right? Only 21% of air is oxygen um, on average. Um, it's to draw oxygen out of the air that you take in, diffuse that oxygen into your bloodstream so that your body can use it to maintain metabolic function. Air or oxygen in, carbon dioxide out. That's the that's the basic idea. Now it does. There's way more that's interconnected, but we just talk about basic respiration. That's the idea. Okay. And so, what's the purpose then, really, at a very basic level of why do we need oxygen in our body? What what's the purpose of oxygen when we when we suck it in, really? Well, the mitochondria in your body, right? So that's the powerhouse of the of the individual cell that creates your primary source of energy, right? So ATP, um, I won't go, yeah, I won't go too deep into ATP, but right. Adenosine triphosphate is, is the fundamental energy resource for all activity, aerobic, anaerobic, it doesn't matter, but, um, oxygen comes into the system and oxygen gets used by the mitochondria to create ATP so that we can do everything, including continuing to breathe. Right. So, and this is a process that's happening literally from the moment you're born until your very last moment on earth. It's funny you said that because I was thinking about that today, you know, um, I was thinking about our conversation. I was thinking it's interesting, isn't it? The breath, you know, I've listened to some podcasts um, that are kind of, you know, Buddhist or mind mindfulness or kind of got some roots in Hinduism and they talk about using the breath work with people dying. And um, it's interesting when you think about it, you know, because <laughs> the first thing you do when you come into the life, this life is you take a breath. And the last thing you do is you take a breath. That's and right. I, I was thinking about that today and I was like, oh, that's, that's really interesting. It's the first thing you do and the last thing you do and something you will do consciously or unconsciously throughout your life. And a bit like sleep, you talk about being a third of our life, but we breathe every minute, every second, every microsecond nearly for some people. And not a shit do we really give about or talk about. So it's, it's pretty interesting. So uh, yeah. my, my question was going to be, what's the benefit of working on your breath? But I think it's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, it's with us all the time and it's connected fundamentally to so many layers of our physiology. So the most obvious thing is that it manages our energy resources, right? Oxygen in, carbon dioxide out. But it also has a deep, connection with our brain function and our emotion, right? There's more and more research coming out that shows that rate and depth of respiration happen almost um, simultaneously with environmental predictions. So for example, you know, the primary purpose of the sort of amygdala and that, that deeper limbic system is to be scanning the environment for potential threats evolutionarily, right? But it's also the seat of emotion, right? The amygdala. So what they have found is when there's stimulation of the amygdala, there's immediate change in respiratory rate. And what's interesting though is because that, that, um, that nerve system is a two-way street. If I change my respiration rate, then it also has the reverse effect. So I can, I can enhance or decrease my arousal level based on 
my respiration rate. So I can make a decision about it or it can happen automatically. One of the things I say at the seminar is that our bodies are self-regulating, but they're not self-optimizing. Right. So yeah, yeah, very interesting. You know, otherwise we wouldn't need to train anything ever. It would just do automatically what's best. So this is interesting, Rob, because something as a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner myself for the last six, seven years, and a, like yourself, a background in other martial arts, but I find in jiu-jitsu and even doing wrestling, cross, crossover, doing some cross-training in wrestling, the breadth is pretty bad at the start. And so now when new white belts come, I'm a purple belt, been a purple belt for a few years, but brand new white belts come along. For the first six months, I'm just like, man, just calm down, control your breathing, just relax. I'm not going to hurt you. I swear to God, I'm not going to hurt you. Like, look, I'm 40 years of age. I'm a gray-haired dude, half your size. You're 20. You're six foot three. Anytime you want to beat the shit on me, you can do it. So just relax. And you can see them kind of just calming down in their eyes and just like, but because they haven't been in that position before. And so the breadth is very, very, from a combat perspective, it's, it's the first thing I, I see going in people. Or even in um, MMA training, that I, I don't really do that often, but when I do, you get someone up against the cage and MMA training or sparring, and I'm no skilled athlete, but you, you start putting better pressure on them and you take them to the ground. Again, the breath is the first thing to go. What, why is that? Is that related to what you're saying or is it something completely different? 100% because, so, I mean, one of the things that engages the sort of, Not fight or flight, that's the common, the sort of the layman's term, right? Fight or flight. But what we find, find is at the most base level mammalian response, it's, it's flight or freeze. Now, usually yes. there's, there's, some, uh, there's some training, whether um, purposefully or not, that engages the fight response, either a past experience or, um, or purposeful training. Um, but if you want to find out really quick how people react, put them in a combat situation right? Personal combat will tell you right away. And what's interesting is, um, I think because of the way our culture is organized, we seldom have situations where we physically encounter other human beings in the way we may traditionally have. Now in, in some places it, it might be different. Like some cultures are just a bit scrappier as I'm sure you're well aware. Right. Oh, we, we, we never, we never fought growing up in Ireland. Yeah. I think I was all in 30 by the time I was seven. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the thing is, is that human being like a lot of times it, one, it's the unknown, right? I don't know what will happen here, but then also your brain may be reading like this is a potential threat. Like I'm engaging in a physical struggle with, with another human being. And what's interesting is you do find that naturally, as you, because I'm a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu practitioner, if you roll with another white belt or you roll with a black belt, there is a far greater difference between how they're addressing the conflict and how they're breathing. One is probably because a black belt has such a much higher skill level, or e even a purple belt like yourself, that you're using far less actual metabolic energy to perform the task required. You're not using any more tension in the system than is required. And so as a result, your physiology isn't reacting as though it's at a deficit because it's not, right? So there's like the baseline, like chemical physiology component. But then there's also the part with our brain. 
you've been in that encounter so many times and been vulnerable and come out tapped, gotten tweaked, whatever the case may be that you go, that's oh, not a big deal because it has become your normal. Mm. Right. And what'll eventually happen is if you stay on the mat long enough, you'll relax into the experience. And you see that, right? Black belts are usually more in control of their breathing. They're moving They're Even if they're moving fast, they're still relaxed. And it'll just kind of happen. It just takes like a decade plus, yeah. right? Or, and that's the self-regulating part. Your brain and your body will learn it because, you're, because nature says, take the most efficient route, right? Slow water cuts rock. That's the sort of Taoist approach, right? Like nature will find the easy way to get through and go, oh, this isn't very energy efficient and it will figure it out on your behalf. Yeah. Or you can engage in a breath practice that allows you to one, systematically address your energy needs going, hey, listen, nothing that major is happening right now. I really don't need to go... <laughs> Like we literally just slapped hands. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Which, which happens. And it totally happens, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Um, it's a tremendous asset for me because I literally listen for other guys to hyper, start hyperventilating and try to execute a move in time with that because I know that their reaction is not going to be, they're not going to make the best decision possible then. Yeah. Right? Um, and then the other component of that is Managing our breathing, even while under sort of high movement, high stress scenarios, allows us to, you know, uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman from Stanford University uh, coined this term self-directed adaptive plasticity, right? Which means basically self-directing my, the ability for my brain to change itself. That's adult learning, right? I, I have to decide that I'm going to learn now. And what happens a lot of times is that Adult, the learning curve for adults initially in jujitsu is very slow and people quit early because it's really hard. And what ends up happening, I think, is this doesn't just happen to, in jujitsu, but it's obvious in jujitsu because you interact with the person so intimately. Yeah. Is that w when adults learn things, they're so focused on the anxiety of the, the learning that they don't put themselves in a state where they can actually become better at the thing. So in jujitsu, what's been really helpful for me, or actually a lot of skill tasks, even where there's something unknown happening, is to try to use my breathing to stay relaxed. One, so I'm more energy efficient at accomplishing the physical task. But two, it puts my brain in a state where I can actually learn more effectively. So to use jujitsu as the easy example again, I'm a white belt, so my skill relative to most other practitioners is still low. So I might still be getting smashed or, or beaten, but because my cognition, uh, more advanced layers of my cognition are available, I think that I realize sooner what mistake I made, and it makes it easier for me to honestly reflect on why the thing happened and not just allow, allow the emotion of, fear, anxiety, embarrassment. Like you can do away with all of that shit and just go, well, what exactly happened? What was my part in that? What could I have done to prevent it? And what skill do I need to practice in order to make the likelihood of that happening less next time? That's a very fundamental um, 
sort of way to think about skill development, unfortunately, to mature into that thinking on its own takes a very long time. But to do away with all that other stuff and just be about the actual thing is the key. And I mean, honestly, that's what Zen and Buddhist traditions, right, have been talking about for thousands of years is sort of you need to temporarily subjugate the ego. I don't think we should dispense entirely with the ego, but what we're really finding out is that there are some some neurophysiological markers for the subjugation of the ego or what in like psychology or Buddhism or Eastern traditions might be called subjugation of the ego and that there's a physiological state that actually can be measured and that we can control that thing with breathing. And that's something that people have been saying for thousands and thousands of years. It's the essence of Zen tradition. It's the essence of martial arts traditions and how you should act and behave and learn in martial arts. And, um, I think the barrier to that in Western culture has been simply the language because we're scientific, right? Yeah. So on that, on that point, Rob, then, you know, you talk about this link back to like, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism, which we kind of interwoven in the conversation so far. Is this something that's been around for thousands of years that we're just sort of rediscovered in a different light? Has it always been around as you've probably discovered elements of it through your yoga yoga journey your Wim Hof interaction on you know and with other people and so on or are we just is it like just version two version three version four version five of breathwork yeah you know one of my mentors uh in manual therapy used to say there's no new horses just new riders (laughs) 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 so this stuff's been around forever the difference now is that um the language is different, right? So we're developing a more precise lexicon to describe what it is that we're feeling. And because our measurement tools are more sophisticated, we can also be more precise in the educational application for individuals. So instead of me going, hey man, when you're rolling and you're freaking out, just breathe. And hey, by the time you're like an advanced blue belt, you'll kind of start to figure this shit out, which will take like three or four years. I could show you some breath techniques that will, in like a few minutes, that will teach you how to calm down. And if you practice them, they'll work in a variety of circumstances, including jujitsu or I'm having an argument with my wife or some asshole in traffic cut me off or I'm having a bad day or whatever, whatever, whatever. Because at the most fundamental level of our physiology, the initial reaction sequence is basically the same, right? And so it's, it's creating an intermediary response between a stimulus and the response. Then you actually can interject a choice by interrupting the physiology. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting your angle of coming at because you're obviously a very um, knowledgeable guy in this area and a skilled practitioner and uh, you know, an expert in this area on breathwork, and you've brought that expertise to jujitsu, where I think a lot of people, through their journey of jujitsu, have developed their control of breath through skill, competency, time, um, like you say, being being sort of, you know, going through that task a million times, and you know, getting very comfortable. And like for me, one thing I found is that jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu, more so 
has helped me more than any other martial art activity I've done in my life in terms of keeping calm. So to your point, you bring, you bring, you bring breath work to it. For me, I bring jujitsu to other things. So when I was doing my PhD and some asshole was asking me questions at a conference or trying to run me down or question my dad or kind of just be negative, I think to myself, this isn't as bad as getting squashed underneath by some big brown belt who's trying to take my head off. I can deal with this. Or when things are going bad, such as in traffic, or when I was you know, doing a 100-kilometer run in the mountains, it really helped me focus on my breath. Because I was like, shit, man, this, this ain't nothing compared to getting smashed for an hour rolling. Totally. And, and then recently, I've taken up swimming again. And I'm a pretty, pretty bad swimmer. And what I've, you know, I've been getting some private swimming lessons before I had this injury. And the base of the pyramid that this swimming coach talks about, the base of this pyramid is breathing. And I went, ha ha, just like jujitsu, just like running, just like everything else. And so exactly. once, I, once I got my breathing right and my ability to relax more in the water, I went from doing like 1.5 Ks up to two and a half Ks within two weeks. I joined a swimming group started to swim with those guys, you know, and my, just my ability to be able to go further doesn't mean it has to be better, but my ability straight away has increased by, you know, 25, 30%. My capacity um, to, to go further has increased straight away by just controlling that simple thing about the breath as well and realizing that, you know, I'm not going to drown here. Breathing is the only thing we have to do all the time. Yeah. It's the only thing. You'll die, you'll die in just a few minutes, right? It's so, it's so fundamental. And I think a lot of times, like I say, we, because we take it for granted because of the systems that are built in to keep that mechanism functioning, it's very easy to take for granted. And so we don't teach it um, as much as we should, right? We don't formalize that process. With something like swimming or diving, right, it's – fundamental because your resource for air gets taken away a lot more quickly. Like you're in the water, it's not available to you unless you have gills. So you have to manage the oxygen. You do get much better. Um, but it's the fundamental aspect. It doesn't matter if you're a rugby player or if you sweep floors for a living and you're not active at all other than that, or you're a martial artist or whatever. It's, it's the fundamental it's a fundamental physiological process that is universal for all human beings, every single one. And so, you know, what, what I think Brian and I wanted to do is, is not like reinvent the wheel and say, well, we made up this breathing, we made this stuff up. It's just that we try to identify um, some principles that were universal that would easily describe a huge gamut of possible applications and then create systems that could be measured so that we could be more precise in application. And that's the whole idea, right? That's the whole idea. Name it, measure it, use it. And you do that over and over and over again. And that's how things progress. Yeah. Right. So Rob, we, we've spoken a lot about, a lot about performance Um and before we talk about sleep, I want to ask you one more question because we spoke so much about martial arts. Sure. There's, there's videos popping around the internet, which many people, so any jiu-jitsu people will be like, why didn't he ask this question? So I'm going to ask this question. There's great videos getting around there from, and you probably have seen this video, the video called Choke with Hicks and Gracie. Have you seen this? Of course. 
of course. course. If, you have, if you're a jiu-jitsu practitioner out there, you're not a jiu-jitsu practitioner, so you watch this, and it's free on YouTube, so you have no excuse. In that video, Chug, we see Hickson doing a lot of this breath work, you know, and yoga-type stretching and a lot of movement stuff, and you hear people like Joe Rogan going, man, you know, Hickson was onto it years ago. Um, and maybe, did he always do that, or did he just do it as an older athlete? And sort of in interviews, you find out that he sort of always done elements of this. Um, so how, what, what kind of breath work is he doing there, Rob? Do you know what he's doing? What's that kind of method? Because I see guys that just trying to suck their stomach in with no real success and kind of wonder. Yeah, well, you have to know, you have to know why you're doing it, right? So you got to know your why. I think Cron, uh, his son Cron, is probably yeah. the one who carries the torch the most with uh, some of the deep, integrating deeper practices into jujitsu. Um, Hickson's an interesting character, universally regarded as the best ever. There's, I don't think there's any single jiu-jitsu practitioner on the planet who would argue otherwise. The only people who maybe come close are like uh, Marcelo Garcia um, and a couple of those like sort of universal greats. But Hickson was the groundbreaker for a lot of that, just showing the efficacy of jiu-jitsu. Um, in the video, in Choke... Um, he's doing some things, at least to my knowledge, from uh, yogic traditions. So he's doing um, Kabbalah Bhati breathing, which means like uh, it means shining skull. Kabbalah Bhati means shining skull, and that's a faster paced breath rhythm. And then he's also doing some work with the bandhas, right? So bandhas are in the yogic tradition. They think of it as an energy, like a, a blocking energy flow, um, and sort of Kundalini channel. In physiological terms, um, it has to do with um, like fascial diaphragm, so like your pelvic diaphragm, your respiratory diaphragm, and then there's a sort of a third diaphragmatic system that's in the throat, so you can lock the throat. Uh, interestingly enough, um, free divers use the, those locks. They just call them locks um, quite a bit to keep when they have air stored in the chamber of their thoracic cavity. It's to keep additional air from escaping out of their mouth uh, accidentally out of their mouth or nose. So they actually lock their throat as they dive. Um, but in any case, Hickson, that thing that he's doing with his stomach um, is almost like a reverse, reverse breath pattern. So as you, as you suck in like that, it creates a vacuum um, and it, it creates a really interesting stretch for um, the anterior portion of the diaphragm. Uh, and then also the because you're creating a, a a vacuum in the opposite you know you're actually creating an upward vacuum, then the internal intercostals get stretched quite a bit. So um, if you ever have a chance with somebody who's competent, uh, competent instructor to show you how to do that, I would say that's the most freeing thing I've ever done for my trunk. Really? And yeah, doing that and like. Uh, learning how to do that in an apnea protocol. Yeah, because you're, people think like, um, and of course it's important, like your psoas, right? Like, okay, deal with your psoas, deal with your spinal erectors. But your diaphragm is the entire circumference of your thoracic cavity. It's huge. It has a, the center of it is a giant tendon. It attaches all the way around and then goes down your spine. So it has an enormous surface area that it connects to. And it connects to your low back, right? And it actually crosses. So if you think about like the diaphragm where it connects to the front and side of your 
thoracic and upper lumbar vertebra. It looks like um, if you've ever seen a venomous snake when it unfolds its fangs, it looks like that. And it has these two fingers, sort of these two fangs that go down along your spine and actually share connective tissue with your psoas. And so as you open all that up, it's sort of a secondary way to get to the psoas. So if your psoas is really locked up, breath work actually is um, sort of a backdoor into getting the low back to release. And we all know like if your low back is stiff, basically trying to do anything else is a bitch, right? And if you can get your low back, your trunk, your hips to open up, then your bod- the rest of your body sort of the dominoes sort of fall on their own. So what about, what about the upper back then, Rob? Because many people would hold a lot of tension in their shoulders and neck. What's yeah, for, would that help there as well? Or is that what you need a different protocol? Um, no, I think, uh, well, it, that one isn't precisely for that, but it will move up the chain. But um, again, um, if you wanted to go deep into it, I mean, there, there's some easy things, you know, you can do with um, like some lacrosse balls and things like that to get the vertebra and the, and the ribs to move better. But as far as like traditional breathing exercises like the cat and cow or some people say cat camel um and and breathing into the end ranges of that is probably the simplest thing you can do um i found that for me my upper back opened up the most doing apnea work because you have to fill up the top end of your lungs so a lot of us never really see the very top end of our breath system and we don't really see the bottom end of the breath system um, because we don't get not that your lungs, they don't really fill up the bottom and then it goes up. And it's not like, it's not exactly like a glass of water. It kind of simultaneously expands, but it will only expand in the direction that the container is open enough for it to expand. It's like, it's like if you had a, a coffee cup, you're trying to blow up a balloon inside of a coffee cup or inside of a bucket, yeah, yeah. right? If there's more space, the balloon will get bigger. Um, and your lungs, your lungs are the same way. Um, so uh, traditionally, um, apnea type protocols, um, or, um, you know, if you want to get into the mechanical side, like the cat cow or cat camel, however you want to refer to it, those are easy things to implement. Awesome. So Rob, moving on to, um, this podcast always takes wild and wonderful tangents. So this is brilliant, but we will bring it back to a couple of sleep questions. For the, sure. for the people you've worked with, Rob, or maybe what you've seen in your, in your, stu- your study of this area, how, how does working on the breath benefit sleep? I think it helps people change gears a little more easily. I find that um, because we have so much stimulation, like our, our brain is constantly being stimulated and because human beings are so visual, um, we have a lot of visual stimulation going into the brain. And... Um, people don't prepare for sleep as well. And on top of that, we very rarely see the sunset um, and yeah. you know, like actually see it. Yeah. We're aware that it's dark now, yeah. but not often do we actually visually see it. Right. And we know that that sends a message to the brain about it, what time you're supposed to go to sleep. Um, so what happens is many of us go from like 80 miles an hour and then expect to just lay down in bed and go to zero. And uh, I call that the toggle switch. Like a lot of people just have on off. And what we have to do is turn that system into a dial, right? So if I know especially um, that I have trouble getting to sleep or calming down, then obviously you want to remove stimulation or do whatever you want until 9 p.m., right? That's, that's a nice way to say it, better way to say it, right? And then um, 
start doing things that that you know are relaxing one of which could be breath work and it really doesn't take much more than five or ten minutes um, different people respond to different protocols so um, a couple easy ones that you can integrate are um, if you just sit or lie down in a quiet place where you're not going to be bothered and you can do uh, maybe like five seconds in five second hold five seconds out five seconds hold so it's just five 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 and you just do that for about five minutes keep your keep your brain on your breath as much as you can if you find that you wander off just bring it back in keep everything nice and slow and smooth like that that's just a starter protocol another one is a very simple apnea protocol where you could do um, like a one two one which would be like five second in ten second hold five second out right and, and so both of those are very simple I use five seconds probably because it's just easy to remember you know um, some people the first one is called a cadence the second one I gave is called an apnea some people respond more stimulated to one or the other and others might respond more relaxed so try them both a few days in a row see which one relaxes you more do that one before bed do the other one when you wake up um, you know it just depends on who you are as an individual and it might change over time as well um, but it doesn't have to be fancy you know I think a lot of times when people think about oh I have to do some breath work before bed they think it's gonna be this long like 20 or 30 minutes and it's all this fancy stuff for me it's like five or ten minutes maybe and it's usually integrated with something else so so Robin in your work or in your study again have you seen that it helps helps with specific sleep disorders whether it be sleep related breathing disorders such as obstructive sleep apnea um, people who may be experiencing oxygen desaturation or even those people with sleep onset insomnia and anxiety, which you alluded to a moment ago. But I'm interested to see, because um, I haven't come across too much stuff, and I'm just wondering what you've seen. Yeah, I think as far as like uh, sleep disorders like apnea, um, or even just like severe snoring difficulties, um, training yourself to breathe through your nose at night, uh, if possible, has tremendous um, – I know that when I if I have a bad night of snoring, like if my sinuses are – troublesome then I never wake up feeling um, as rested as if I've slept well and breathe through my nose um, you can use like surgical tape and tape your mouth closed at night but don't use duct tape obviously because it'll be harder to get off and it'll it'll hurt like shit when you pull it off but if you use surgical tape you know if you have facial hair or something you can pull it off very easily and sometimes it just falls off um, but what it does do is sort of sets the tone for breathing with the nose and generally speaking your your really your nose is the hole on your face made for breathing um, there's a filter it's innervated by the vagus nerve so it tends to be more calming more relaxing than breathing with the mouth and then also we're not offloading as much carbon dioxide so my body isn't trying to keep up metabolically with what should be a restful activity um, so, you know, I found with people who have, uh, you know, apnea or just severe snoring problems that um, taping the mouth and then as much as possible training yourself to breathe with your nose through the day, um, actually your body will just start to take over and use that as normal. I find that people 
in my experience, have gotten far more restful sleep um, if they're breathing through their nose while they sleep. Um, as far as um, like anxiety-related sleep disorder, um, I think, I mean, with anything anxiety-related, routine is the routine is the key, right? Because anxiety is a prediction error about what will happen. So the unfortunate thing, as I'm sure you're aware, is when people have sleep trouble, they start to predict that they will have sleep sleep trouble, regardless of any evidence of whether or not they will have sleep trouble. And then as a result of that reaction, they have a self-confirming prophecy where they then have sleep trouble, yeah. <laughs> right? And so what breath work can do is minimally, one, set your physiology up for better rest, um, but then two, open your mind to the possibility that you might sleep better, which might be enough regardless of the actual physiological, just opening your mind up to the possibility that you may sleep better may have some positive effect towards sleeping better. I find this with um, military guys actually pretty regularly where they're so used to not sleeping, they sort of get this attitude of like, ah, oh, fuck it. Like I don't sleep well anyway, so I'm just going to stay up until one until I basically pass out. And one thing I've had to do is educate them about the difference between being unconscious and sleeping. Like just because you're unconscious doesn't mean that you slept. Right. And so, you know, in professional sports and, and military life, people don't realize how pervasive Ambien is. And Ambien is not sleep. Ambien induced unconsciousness is not the same thing as natural sleep whatsoever. Like if you look at the brain, what the brain is doing, they are not the same. That's right. Yeah. Pretty different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're, totally, they're totally different. A short term solution, you know, to get over, you know, a kind of a, a glitch in the road or an unfortunate event maybe in somebody's life but definitely not used, supposed to be used long-term. And interestingly enough, Rob, we probably said this before in the podcast, is that long-term use of sleep medication is, is not effective. What is effective is sleep hygiene, protocols before bed, like you alluded to and spoke about. And then also the other thing as well is that, <laughs> interesting enough, things like chamomile tea and relaxing activities before bed over a five-year period are more effective than taking Ambien every night or other sleep medication. So it's definitely not meant to be a long-term solution. Well, of course they do because our, that activity is regulated by rhythm, right? That's why it's called the circadian rhythm. So your brain is starting to predict what's coming next based on the behavior that you're engaged in currently, right? So if I have the same, the same things that I do before bed each night, then my brain goes, oh, this is the thing that we do before we go to sleep, right? So like for me, it's not just breath work, but I tend to like roll out, like do soft tissue rolling before bed and whether or not that actually physiologically makes me sleep better or not, there may be some things to do with perception, but it's a regular activity that I engage in immediately prior to bed so that I am anticipating sleep after I go, Oh, I do this, you know, I do the dishes the, light, the lights are down actually early. I do the dishes. I shut my phone off. I roll out. You know, I, I, uh, I might maybe I'll do some, some breath work with the rolling out. And then I literally get into my bed and close my eyes. Yeah. Not like I get into bed and then I turn my phone back on and I watch the show and I do some other shit. No, I like do those things and then go to sleep 
And anything other than that is not part of the protocol, right? And so I think breathwork also, while having a measurable physiological effect towards relaxation, also helps create an easily an, an easily um, integrated behavioral pattern that can help people prepare for sleep. It doesn't require extra stuff, right? Because they have to breathe anyway. It's not like anybody can say like, well, I don't breathe before bed, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. You do just breathe this way. No, bro, right? I don't. No, bro, I don't. That's what you hear. Yeah. No, bro, I seriously yeah. don't. No, no, bro, I don't breathe, man. I don't breathe. I'm cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, like one, I'm like one of those people, one in every five million people doesn't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're dead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, that means you're dead, and sleep is no longer a concern of yours. I think it's, um, I think it's really interesting, Rob, what you said because we have a guest coming on the podcast that we were supposed to record with last week, but maybe um, even though these episodes are going to be released all at once, but <laughs> it doesn't really matter when they get recorded. We have a guy called Professor Russell Foster who's coming on, and he's got a TED talk which has got over five million views. Russell has been on the Infinite Monkey Cage BBC podcast with Brian Cox, the physicist been on TV in the UK. He's uh, won multiple awards. He's coming here to Perth, Australia in a few months, but he's coming on the podcast. Uh, he was actually my PhD examiner. Great guy um, as well. And uh, Russell specialized in circadian rhythms, and he's going to be talking more about this. But what you say is interesting because there's a couple of things happening with a circadian rhythm. Like you said, these are things that happen. And hour by hour, we can break this down. Our bodies are behaving in a certain way. We cannot flip these circadian rhythms completely. We're meant to be asleep between three and six o'clock in the morning. We're at a lower body temperature. This is when we're supposed to have REM sleep and, and so on and so on. But also, exactly what you said earlier on, we need to observe the sunset, which helps us kind of click into that mode about, you know, we are coming down, so to speak. And not only is that happening internally with every human, but externally, these what we call zeitgerbers in sleep science or time givers, a German word, for these things that we do or this routine, such as stretching, rolling, your breath work, turning off your phone, all these things are cues. And so when we have people who are traveling um, or experiencing jet lag, which is a form of uh, circadian rhythm disruption, we say to people, go outside, observe the sunset, have dinner on local time, have the routine that you normally have before at home, before bed. Try to mimic those things as well because the routine and what's happening internally, so the endogenous and exogenous factors are completely you know, kind of mesh together. So it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, you support, you find out what does your body naturally do, and then you create a protocol to support you, the, the best information that you have about how nature is functioning. Yeah. That is, that is all training across any system everywhere. It's because you can't, you can't disobey nature. We think we can, but it's actually not possible. It just means you don't fundamentally understand the consequence of that action yet, right? But you don't really disobey nature. You obey nature, and then you get an undesired consequence from the way you obeyed it. Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> and that's what people say. Oh, I get by in six hours. You know? No, you don't. It's gonna. It's you. You. You, you might get by, or you might function, but you're not optimizing yourself, and. To your point, no, you don't because later on you're going to pay for it. And like Tim Ferriss has said on his podcast, and I agree with this, there is no biological free ride. No, there is not. There's not. And I'll, I'll tell you, um, so, you know, briefly earlier we had mentioned, I had mentioned to you about that personal experiment that I'm running. Yes. 
Tell us right. about this. And, yeah. So, you know, one of the one of the large measures that we use and that has been uh, repeatedly found through research to be a good measure of autonomic function is carbon dioxide tolerance. And if you want to know more about this carbon dioxide tolerance tense, they can go to um, powerspeedendurance.com forward slash breathing and find out more about it. But um, just for our conversation, we'll keep it keep it easy. So um, what I've been what I wanted to do is to see the relationship between my sleep, my neurological function, and um, breath protocols. And so I'm only about a week into this personal experiment. So each night, um, uh, you know, obviously I go to bed, I try to stick to my normal routine as much as I can. I wake up at my normal time and then I record what, what, what did I do the night before when I went to sleep. So was it like a normal night or did I do evening jujitsu or whatever? Did I have a disagreement with my wife? Whatever it was, right? So I record what I did. Then I take a tap test on a cell phone, right? So I do a tap test where you're just tapping your finger as many times as you can in 10 seconds, both left index finger, right index finger, which is an indicator of neuromuscular function. Right. What, what do you tap? So, what do you, what do you tap in there? Exactly. Like a calculator the screen. There's a small target on the screen. Yeah, and it just it just adds up how many times in the ten seconds that you that you tap. So it's just a reactivity, a basic reactivity uh, indicator. You know, by no means is it the coup de grace. Is it an app? It's an app. Yep, tap test. So I did the tap test. Then I did my carbon dioxide tolerance test, and then what I would do after that is uh, a breath protocol, and the breath protocol will be. I'm going to try four different ones, one different one each week for four weeks, right? And I would do my breath protocol, and then I'll retest those metrics. I'll do the tap test again, and then I'll um, do my carbon dioxide tolerance. And so far, the greatest predictor of how effective the protocol would be at improving my results is the, the quality of sleep that I got. The night before, not necessarily how much sleep, but how well I was rested and how good I like. I could almost tell based on how I felt when I woke up. This is gonna, I'm gonna have a good tap test day or or not, mm. right? Uh, especially the initial one. So I could be like, oh man, I feel groggy. This is, you know, this isn't gonna go great. Um, now, of course, I'm still in very early stages, but it doesn't surprise me that. Um, that's the case. Like I know about myself that I'm very sleep sensitive. So I feel like, uh, for me, I can buffer nearly any physical or psychological stress. If I can, if I get enough sleep, I, I mean, I can buffer. That's just, now I know that's true of everybody to some degree, but I know for me as a person, like I don't tolerate, uh, sleep deprivation well, Yeah. but, but I can, I can buffer a tremendous amount of physiological and psychological stress if I can go to sleep soon thereafter and I can, and I am a napper. I, I, it, me napping doesn't affect my, I tend to be a very parasympathetic person. So I can take a 20 minute nap or a 30 minute nap and even in the afternoon and at night I can, I can drop out and it doesn't, doesn't affect your sleep pressure. No. Yeah. But that's just something that I've learned over time. Now, if I if I nap more than an hour, it will. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'll stay up later. Um, but if I keep it to twenty or thirty minutes, then I can go to bed normal time, 
go to sleep, wake up. And I, but I tend to nap in the afternoon if I've like had a really hard training session. Like a lot of times if I go to jujitsu, I learn a lot of new techniques and then I stay and roll hard about an hour later. I'm like, I'm going to take a 20 or 30 minute nap. And I just find that I integrate, I integrate the information uh, a lot faster. I should listen to you, Rob, because I tend to go for a pot of coffee around that time, which I shouldn't because then I have trouble sleeping later on. But I try to get through that slump after a lunchtime jiu-jitsu class with coffee around three o'clock because... Uh, I'm not saying that's what I always do. <laughs> Rob, Rob is holding up a, a nice cup of coffee. Yeah. Oh, no, it is it is nearly 9 p.m. my time and it's like nearly what 9 a.m. Rob's time. So yeah. he, he's well he's well allowed to have a coffee. <laughs> yeah but i love i love coffee me oh, coffee are good friends so do i yeah my wife calls me um a coffee whore because i i every new coffee shop in town i know i've gone that coffee's crap stay away from there that's cheaper that's more expensive so i, <laughs> I know all the coffee haunts in this town it's my, it's my only vice and my best vice and i think it's kind of ironic that in the sports world i published to the best of my knowledge uh, I, I was the only person to publish a paper that looked at the effect of caffeine on sleep after a competition, which we published earlier on this year. Um, and I thought that was quite uh, ironic, given the fact that I consume probably half the city's caffeine. <laughs> 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 so, so, Rob, if people want to get a hold of you, um, well, first of all, before we get a hold of you, what kind of offering do you give in terms of uh, workshops, online courses, education. What what do you have to that avail that people can maybe tap into straight away? Yeah, so of course we have the uh, the Art of Breath seminars, which we provide you know all over the world. Um, we were in Australia uh, and New Zealand last year, and then um, we were just at a stint in Europe uh, a couple months ago. Um, primarily, we're in the states, but uh, we'll probably be back in Australia next year. Um, are you going to come? Are you going to come to Perth this time? I hope so. I hope so. Maybe uh, if uh, if good old Dono can, uh, can pull some strings for us. Jason Donaldson, um, episode two of the podcast. Get get onto this. Yeah, that's right. Um, so um, yeah, so the hope is to be back, and then uh, so you can go to powerspeedendurance.com forward slash art of breath to find out about that. Um, if you go to powerspeedendurance.com forward slash breathing. Um, there's all of our, um, breath programs. So we have, um, our fundamentals breath programs, which focus on mechanics and, uh, nasal breathing development. And then we just released uh, an energy system control, um, program, which basically introduces the concept of gears inside the breath rhythm. Um, uh, basically using different breath patterns to affect different metabolic processes while you're working. Um, so those are some of the offerings that we have. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the main, that's the main bulk of our, uh, of our work. We're traveling all over working, uh, and presenting. And, uh, if you want to find me, the easiest way is Instagram, uh, at prepare to perform. That's my Instagram handle, um, at power speed endurance. Um, that's our team, uh, at underscore Brian McKenzie is also great. Brian's always posting uh, really interesting, uh, thoughts and thought experiments on on human performance and uh, just life in general. Um, so those are some some really easy ways to find us and and our work. 
So will you, will you be bringing the Art of Breath course online for consumers? That's the goal. So we're filming uh, next month. And then I'm not sure when that would be. The release date is to be determined. Um, but we're definitely uh, filming and organizing all the filming this summer. I imagine it would be out by the fall um, okay. at the latest. Yeah, so it'll be online so that, um, you know, especially internationally, it'll be much easier to get a hold of our work. Um, but um, even if you do the online course, being somewhere in person, I've certainly taken online work before. And then when I met, when you go talk to the person, you can, inter you know, you interact with people. Um, it's a beautiful experience. So um, either like, way. Yeah. I feel like something like the breath work would be very powerfully visually like done. Like I, for me, personally, instead of reading about a protocol, to see a protocol would be very, to, to kind of go along with and have a timer in the corner, for example, or even see somebody, I would find that very beneficial for someone like me that learns by kind of seeing and doing more so. And then I, I would rather see something, do it, and then learn the theory afterwards, personally me. But, um, you know, I know everybody learns differently, but, um, you know, something like that, I think would be very beneficial. Yeah, that's ten, that tends to be how I, I function as well. I, I'll see a protocol, I'll try it. And then I go, okay, what the hell's going on here? Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think having the personal experience and then also just finding other practitioners who maybe you weren't aware how close they were. Sometimes you go, oh, well actually, you know, we have this common interest, we, you know, it creates a community as well. And that's yeah. also one of our goals is um, through the art of breath work, especially is to create a community. Um, because look, first of all, Brian and I by no means have like all of the, it's impossible for one or two people to hold like all the information. There are people out there who are very, very smart and doing very, very uh, good work. And we just as much as we want to share what we've done, we want them to come to these things and be part of our community and then give back so that we can all learn together and progress all of it basically for everybody's benefit. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. And so Rob, are you available then to do like kind of one-on-one -on -one consultations with people who may want to work on specific breathwork activities via Zoom or Skype? Absolutely. Yeah. So powerspeedendurance.com. Uh, people can find me there uh, and do a coach consult for sure. Happy to do that work. Rob, thank you so much for giving up your time. Really appreciate it. Great conversation. Oh, my pleasure. I love thank you for having me. No problem. Man. It's great. I love the tangents and I hope we can meet um, face to face and, uh, kill each other in jiu-jitsu in a controlled environment and then uh then talk about why we panicked and didn't breathe right <laughs> <laughs> love to love to if i come back to uh, australia i'm definitely bringing a gi there's you no bet. question definitely man have, and, have, and, have, gi, have gi will travel have gi will travel yeah and um, and also we also have a song at the end of the podcast i find it very very fitting to have the top gun uh original soundtrack by Berlin, take my breath away to bring us off into the sunset. How's that sound? Very nice. Beautiful. Great sound. 32 years old. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> Thanks, Ian.
This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is brought to you by Orbiz. Orbiz are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries. They facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now, Orbis are growing their global presence across the Asia-Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, through to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost. Who can beat that? Increasing capacity utilization, throughput, increase in revenue, profitability, and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joining engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing, and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbiz.io, that's Orbiz, O-R-B-I-Z.io, for more information, get in contact with them to organise a business and one that is trusted here in Western Australia. SleepWA is one of the only sleep and respiratory centres to provide holistic care and treatment for all sleep and respiratory disorders, not just obstructive sleep apnea, which many people would have hear, heard about in, uh, in the news or in, in the scientific literature or even on this podcast. So SleepWA believe that all patients deserve compassion, support, multiple treatment options and education to allow them to actively participate in their own journey to better health. SleepWA provides a comprehensive service to diagnose and recommend treatment of all respiratory diseases and sleep disorders. This includes rare sleep disorders and those complicated by cardiovascular disease. The SleepWA philosophy is to offer patients expert diagnosis, effective therapy and supportive guidance on the road to better health and sleep. They are a leader in respiratory and sleep medicine and provide the following service at locations throughout Western Australia. Consultation with experienced specialists, comprehensive respiratory testing for lung disease, asthma and allergies, inpatient sleep studies, 
home-based sleep studies, that's pretty handy, insomnia management programs for insomnia and circadian disorders, and fatigue management programs to reduce risk and improve health in the workplace. So get started on your journey towards better health and sleep today and head over to Sleep WA, that's WA for Western Australia, and get in contact with Dion and Jack over there. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science Ready Band is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The Ready Band is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomechanical fatigue model, which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is it's actually predicting into the future what your performance is going to be based upon your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners of this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you have accrued, and even your local um, geographical location, so a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology um, that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ReadyBand not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals. So you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this, the Chicago Cubs have used this, military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, it's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball, um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport, it's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC, so it's a wide variety of applications. So if fatigue is important to you and your organization, whether you're a sports team or industrial workforce, head to fatiguescience.com, that's fatiguescience.com, to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the ReadyBand can improve safety and performance in your organization. <laughs> 